Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 this morning, which are packed with glorious truths. Today, I will begin to preach through the letter to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul from the city of Corinth in about 58 A.D., just just a few years ago. It is the longest letter written by the Apostle Paul in our New Testament and perhaps the most powerful. The impact of this letter has been seen over and over again throughout the last 2,000 years. Let me share a few examples of this with you. In September of 386 A.D., a native of North Africa who had been a professor in Milan, Italy for several years, sat weeping in the garden of his friend's home, weeping over the wickedness of his life while he was sitting there struggling with the guilt and the shame of his wicked lifestyle. He heard in the distance a child singing, Tole lege, tole lege, over and over again, which in Latin means take up and read. He looked down, and alongside of him was an open scroll of the book of Romans. And he picked it up, and he read the first passage on that page, Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. This is what he read. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. He knew at that moment That God was calling him to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for his salvation. Exactly what his dear mother had been praying for him for many years. That man was Aurelius Augustine. Whose life was changed by Christ. And he went on to become one of the church's outstanding theologians and leaders. We know him as Saint Augustine. Just over a thousand years later, Martin Luther, a monk, was preparing to teach the book of Romans to his students at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. As he carefully studied the text, he became more and more convicted by the central theme of justification by faith alone. He later wrote these words. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous, including me. Night and day I pondered this passage until finally, By the grace of God, I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is just that. 
righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have passed through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. This passage became for me the gateway to heaven. Studying Romans had completely transformed Luther's life. And of course it would become the spark that ignited the Reformation. Several centuries later, an ordained minister in the Church of England by the name of John Wesley was also confused about the meaning of the gospel and was himself searching for a genuine experience of salvation. That's right. He was an ordained minister in the Church of England, but he had never been saved. He knew the Word of God, but he did not yet have the understanding. On a Wednesday evening, May 24th, 1738, he wrote this in his journal. I went very unwillingly to a service in Aldersgate where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to Romans. About a quarter before nine, as he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my own heart strangely warmed. I felt that I finally did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. As we know, John Wesley's life was transformed that night by hearing the truths contained in this glorious letter. I tell you these stories of lives transformed to hopefully motivate you to study the book of Romans along with me and experience the life-changing power of the themes addressed in this glorious letter. One more quote. In speaking on the importance of the book of Romans, John Calvin said this, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance Open to him all the hidden treasures of Scripture. So I am excited to go through this journey with each one of you. It has been said that Romans will delight the greatest theologian, yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you back up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. Romans answers many questions concerning man and God, such as, what is the good news, the gospel of God? Is Jesus really God? How can God send people to hell? Why do people reject God and His Son, Jesus? Can any person keep God's law perfectly? How can a sinner be justified by God? What is the importance of Christ's death? What did his death accomplish? And what is the importance of Christ's resurrection? 
What is grace and what does it accomplish? These and many other questions will be answered by this glorious letter to the Romans. Commentators agree that the major themes found in this letter include the gospel, that's kind of important, faith, the law, a correct understanding of it, righteousness, church unity, and justification by faith in Christ. But the most important theme in this letter is Jesus Christ and what he has done to secure our salvation, our sanctification, and our future glorification. He is the focus of this letter. His name in one form or another is found 85 times in this letter. So let us begin our study of this glorious letter by reading the first part of Paul's greeting to the Romans. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of our text. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read down through verse 7, even though we'll only cover the first half of that this morning. This is God's word to us. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are being called, excuse me, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. Believe it or not, in both the Greek and the English, that is one sentence. And this morning we'll look at the first four verses of this sentence. And we will notice three things in our text who the author is, the theme of the letter, and the focus of the letter. So let's start with the author. Who was Paul? He was born Saul in the city of Tarsus in Cilicia. Born in a Greek city famous for its well-known university. Born to wealthy, very strict Jewish parents who had been able to purchase Roman citizenship for, their se- for themselves and their children. We must assume that he had received an outstanding education in Greek culture and learning, as well as being trained in the Hebrew scriptures, laws, and regulations. We know that Saul went to Jerusalem and trained under the renowned Rabbi Gamaliel. He was the son of a Pharisee, and he became a Pharisee himself. 
And as such, he became a self-righteous follower of all the Jewish laws, ceremonies, and traditions. This remarkable Jew with Greek education and Roman citizenship, with incredible leadership ability, high motivation, and an articulate speaker and writer, was specifically and directly called by Christ, converted, commissioned, and gifted to be a servant of Christ and an apostle to the Gentiles. In the very first verse of this letter, Paul discloses three important things about himself to the church in Rome. His position as a servant of Christ, his authority as an apostle, and the purpose for which he had been set apart. Let's start with his position as a servant of Christ, or better translated, a slave of Christ. You see, in most of our English translations, the word doulos here in the Greek is translated as either servant or bondservant. But the true meaning of that word is slave. It was commonly used for those who were in permanent bondage, those who were owned by another. Now you have to understand in the New Testament times, in the times when this letter was written, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And the vast majority of those had been forced into slavery against their will and were kept there by Roman law. Most slaves were treated like the personal property of their owners and had no rights on their own. It's interesting here that Paul identifies himself as a slave of Christ. What does that mean? That means that he considered himself bought and paid for by his Lord. Now, this doesn't simply apply to Paul, but this applies to every one of us who have been redeemed by Christ. Listen to how Paul describes this in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, he writes this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It can't be more clear. You are not your own. You belong to someone else. We are to consider ourselves as belonging to our Lord who paid the ultimate price to redeem us. Therefore, we are to live to serve and glorify Him, not ourselves. We are not our own. We are His Now, Paul was not only a slave to Christ, but he was also called by Christ to be an apostle. The word apostle translates apostolos in the Greek, which has the basic meaning of someone who is sent out on a mission. It refers to a person who was officially commissioned to a position or a task. 
Paul here establishes the authority of his ministry. And it is based on being called and commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. Those of you that are in the Galatians study in our home fellowship groups, you're familiar with this because we've been discussing this over the last couple of weeks. While Saul was still blinded by his miraculous encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, the Lord spoke to Ananias and said to Ananias, quote, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Acts 9.15 So God spoke to Ananias and identified Saul, who would later become Paul, as his chosen one. Paul had been divinely called to be Christ's apostle to the Gentiles. We saw this as well in Paul's opening verse in his letter to the Galatians, where he wrote, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So his authority to speak the gospel, his authority to write the letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of the letters that make up our New Testament. That authority came directly from Christ and from his commission to be an apostle. His authority did not come from men, but it came from God. And it is in that authority, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he writes this letter. Therefore, it is is God's word for us. It was written it was not written to us. It was written to the Romans, but it was written for us. That's why we still have it today. He then goes on to describe his particular calling. What he has been set apart by God for. And he says he's been set apart by God for the gospel. To proclaim the gospel message. Remember, before meeting the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, Saul had been a Pharisee. Pharisee means set apart or separate one. So before meeting Christ, he'd already been set apart by himself. Set apart for the law. Set apart for Jewish customs. Set apart for Jewish traditions. But now, after encountering Christ and being changed by Him, He has been set apart for the sake of the gospel. The gospel of God. God's gospel. His calling was to proclaim the gospel of God in any way that He could. He wrote about this in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9.16, he wrote these words. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what he had been called to do. This is what he had been set apart to do. So Paul identifies himself to the Romans as a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So let's look a little closer at this gospel for which he had been set apart. 
and which is a major theme in this letter. Right here at the opening, Paul just cracks the the door open a little and gives us a view of the light that's going to shine out of this letter that is the gospel. So the gospel is the theme. In fact, the word gospel is found 60 times in this letter. Now most of us know that the word gospel, evangelion in the Greek, means good news. But do we really, truly appreciate how good this good news is? To appreciate it fully, we need to understand that apart from Christianity, the religions of this world are not at all good news. Apart from Christianity, all the religions of this world are self-help or works-based religions. That is, they try to tell you how to find God happiness and fulfillment through human efforts. But we know that is just not possible. God is holy and we are not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory or holiness of God. And our sin keeps us separated from a holy God. And there is nothing that we ourselves can do to cleanse away our sin. It's not possible. Es imposible. This is where Christianity comes and proclaims what is the really good news. The gospel that is of God, not of men. This is the good news that God has made a way for our sins to be forgiven. For us to be made righteous in his sight. And therefore to have a loving relationship with him. And one day to enter into his very presence. And he did this just as he had promised to through, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul referring here to what we now call the Old Testament, the Scriptures given to the Jews. Now this is an important point. Because as many, as, 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 as new as the Christian gospel seemed to be, It was actually the fulfillment of what had always been promised by God. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15. It is estimated that the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies regarding Christ. Most of which were fulfilled at His first coming. As we read through the New Testament... The New Testament writers reference this fact over and over again. In fact, we heard Dr. Sproul this morning in Sunday school reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me remind you of what we heard. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Peter states this truth as well. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter writes this. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired men to write prophecies regarding the coming of a Messiah who would save His people from their sins. Over 300 prophecies. And note, the gospel focus is on the Son of God, Christ Jesus. In Paul's earlier letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminded them of the gospel and how it centers on Christ. Paul writing this, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you when you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So this gospel, this good news that comes from God, is focused on God's Son and what God's Son did to provide salvation for us. God sent His Son and His Son came and His Son died on the cross in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, in fulfillment of the prophecies that had been given in the Scriptures regarding the Messiah suffering and dying to provide salvation for us. He was buried, and then He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, in complete and total agreement with the prophecies, fulfilling those prophecies that stated that He would rise again. He would not remain in the grave. He would not be abandoned by God. So the gospel is focused upon Jesus and upon what He accomplished. Look back at our text. He tells us in verses 3 and 4 what the gospel is focused on. Concerning His Son. Whose Son? God's Son. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul tells us that the gospel of God that God promised beforehand through his prophets concerning his son is fulfilled in Jesus. And Paul gives us three great theological truths here that are just packed into these two verses. First of all, Jesus is the son of God. Amen? He's the very Son of God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. Not just a good man. He is the incarnate Son of God. He is of one 
essence with the Father, and He is therefore God as well. He is God, the second person of the divine trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, but one God. And Jesus explicitly declared this truth during His earthly ministry. One example of this is found in John chapter 10. If you'd like to, you can turn to John chapter 10. Keep your finger there in Romans 1 because we're coming right back. But I'm going to read a passage here that's too long to go on the screen. John chapter 10 verses 22 to 33. Jesus here publicly declares himself to be God while on the temple mount in Jerusalem. John 10.22 At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Remember, Christ is the Greek for Messiah, which is the Hebrew, both meaning the Savior. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What an assurance that is, amen? What an assurance that is, that Jesus Christ gives his followers eternal life, and no one can take them out of his hand. But then he raises the bar even higher. Verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, if it's not enough that Jesus says, you can't be taken away from me, then he says, "Eh, my Father, you can't take him away from him either. And then he makes this statement, verse 30, I and the Father are One. Now make no mistake. The word he uses here in the Greek is the word hen. H-E-N. It means something different in our language today. But in the Greek it means one in essence. One in being. And the Jews who were listening to him, they understood exactly what he was saying, because look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why again? Because this isn't the first time he's claimed to be God. Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I am God. Jesus answered, 
Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? Have you called them gods to whom the word of God came? Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He says, listen, God sent me. I am his Son. I am one with the Father. I am God. If you're here today, You're here because God wants you to hear that fact. Jesus is not just some historical figure. Jesus is not just some person whom people love and worship. Jesus is God. And he explicitly declared this truth. And his disciples also acknowledged this truth when asked by Jesus. Remember that? In Matthew 16, Jesus asked, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. Jesus responded that his Father in heaven had revealed this to them. And then later... After his resurrection, when Thomas fell down to worship Jesus, Thomas declared Jesus to be, quote, my Lord and my God. Jesus accepted that worship because it was true. Now, Jesus was a man. He was fully human, but he was also fully God the holy, righteous, sinless Son of God. And although He had always been God, He humbled Himself, descended from heaven above, taking the form of a servant, being born as a man. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why would He do that? Because of His love. Love for the Father and love for each one that God the Father had given to him to redeem, to save, to provide salvation and eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. So this is the question that each one of us needs to ask. Have I truly trusted in Christ for my salvation? We're familiar with many of the verses in Romans. Such as Romans 3.23 that tells us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all means all. Right. Every one of us in this room. Every one of us, we have sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned against our creator, against the Lord of the universe. We have committed cosmic treason. There is no such thing as a little sin in God's sight. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages or penalty for sin is death. It's death. 
starts with spiritual death. That's the state we're born into. We're born as sinners, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Alive physically, spiritually dead. But Romans 6.23 goes on to say, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Not through Jesus Christ our Lord plus good works. Not through Jesus Christ our Lord plus obedience to the law. Not through Jesus Christ our Lord and traditions or religious practices. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 10.23 tells us that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. This is what Aurelius Augustine experienced 1,700 years ago. This is what Martin Luther experienced 500 years ago. This is what we have experienced if we have trusted in Christ to be our Savior and Lord. And I can stand before you this morning and I can tell you, I know, not hope, know that if I die tonight, I will be with my Lord forever. Nothing can take me out of His hand. This body's not going with me. Thank you, Lord. But my soul, who I truly am, it is safe and secure in the arms of my Lord. Amen? And you can know that as well. Know it. You can know it in your knower. Have absolute confidence. Because this is God's word. This is the glorious gospel of grace. That Jesus, the Son of God, took my place upon the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. And suffered the holy wrath of God that was due for our sin. Fully paying the penalty for our sin. So that we, by God's grace, could be credited with His righteousness. Adopted into His family. Given eternal life. Indwelt by His Spirit. In order that we would become His for all eternity. This is a glorious gospel. Amen? Yes, Jesus is the divine Son of God, but Paul also acknowledges that He is fully human. That He is the direct descendant of King David, just as was prophesied beforehand. In verse 3, he says, was descended from David according to the flesh. The Old Testament is replete with prophecies regarding the descendant of David who would be king. 
One of those prophecies is found in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. There we read these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, that's God, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. How many are righteous? None are righteous. No, not one. That comes from uh, Romans. What do you know? Right? Except Christ. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land and this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Folks, that only describes one person. Jesus Christ. The God-man. Jesus was the one of whom the prophets foretold who would become not only the king of Israel, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And even to this day, at this very moment, he is seated upon his throne, reigning over all of creation. And one day soon, he will return in power and glory and all things will be made new. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Amen? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So Jesus is David's descendant according to the flesh. And Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Christ, our Lord. Paul closes this brief but profound statement of Christ being the focus of the gospel by reminding them that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus was not simply declared to be the Son of God based on His own statements. He claimed to be the Son of God. Yes, He did. Or on the statements of His disciples who claimed He was the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit working in Him and through Him, empowering Him to perform countless miracles, signs, and wonders during His earthly ministry. But the greatest demonstration of that power was in Him being raised from the dead. Raised in a glorified human body. Paul writes that this alone is sufficient to declare him to be the Son of God. Jesus had died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures in power and great glory. Showing to us and to the world that he was indeed the Son of God, the Savior sent by God, the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Make no mistake. Paul states it clearly here at the end of verse 4. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. He is Jesus the God-man, the promised descendant of David. He is Christ, the Messiah, 
the one sent by God and anointed by God to save his chosen people. He is Lord. Of course he is. He is God. He is the sovereign ruler over all of creation. This is who Paul is a slave of and called to be an apostle for. Jesus is the source of the gospel because he is the one who accomplished what was needed to secure our salvation. He is the one through whom we can receive the grace that we need. So let us rejoice in this salvation. And let us rejoice in this wonderful opportunity to study Paul's letter to the Romans and to learn even more about our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and to learn even more about this glorious gospel of God that is the good news that we need in our lives that all need in their lives. May we learn and be equipped so that we might serve the true and living God and so that we might share the gospel of God's grace with many others. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.